Tonight, we're going to talk about a dinner party. And you can learn a lot about people at a dinner party. Um, some people are the social butterfly type who can bounce around having a million mostly shallow conversations with everybody at the party. Some people are that person. Other people like to kind of anchor themselves in the corner and maybe have a conversation with one person, deep, philosophical, real conversation where you solve all the problems of the world. Uh, some people are the quintessential guest where they walk in and they're able to size up where and what all the refreshments are and they just seem made to enjoy every possible amenities. Kids seem to tap this when they walk in and the very first thing out of their mind is, do you have any video games? You know, or, or whatever, if you have a pool, like, hey, can we swim? Like, they just walk in knowing I'm here to enjoy myself. What do you have for me? And then other people are, are the, the, the host, even if it's not their party. They walk in the door and immediately say, what can I do to help? You know, but um, my favorite, though, is some people view a dinner party as a theater, as uh, their personal stage, and others view it as an examination table. Uh, the people who view it as a theater see it as an opportunity to work out all their best material. They feel like they're the center of attention and they love having a captive audience. A great opportunity to shine. And other people, the examination table people, are the ones who have a tendency to feel like every eye is on them, waiting for them to make the smallest mistake. Uh, or, or, and so they go in hoping you know, not to screw up too bad. And I got to learn 25 years ago which one my wife is. Uh, we were at a dinner party, and it was the kind of party where there was a big table full of food, and everybody was kind of carrying their plates around. And, and uh, I was standing on one side of the table with my wife. Um, I was kind of grazing. Um, and my best friend was directly across the table from me, doing the same. And Esther's standing, kind of holding onto my arm, probably trying to pull me away from the food. But... Um, we're eating, and, and Esther leaves to go to the restroom. And uh, while she's gone, just as we're grazing, we make our way around the table until we had kind of swapped places. So I'm where my best friend was, and my wife, or my best friend is now where I was. And so I'm standing where I can see my wife come back into the room, and uh, you can see what's coming, right? And so I noticed as I'm looking at her that she's, lovingly has eyes for no one in the room except the back of my best friend's head. Um, she thinks he's me. So she comes up, and I had the perfect position to stand there and watch my brand new wife grab my best friend right on the butt. His eyebrows shot up, and his eyes opened up, and uh, Esther's head came up and looked me right in the eye across the table. She figured out what she had done. And she turned and bolted from the room and refused to come back all night long because she was positive she made a completely irreparable mess of the thing. I was really hoping she'd be in here for this story, but she's in nursery. But um, I tell you this story because tonight's scripture passage is a dinner party. It's from a dinner party that John shares with us. And, uh, and a lot goes on in this party. So... I'm going to read now. Would you do me a favor? It's a short passage. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. 
A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among them who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This was one of um, the funnest passages I've ever read commentary on, uh, because this passage is actually downright scandalous. Um, And let me open by saying this is not a family service. You guys can be seated. I'm sorry. Uh, This is not a family service. There's absolutely no way for me to do justice to tonight's passage and make it a kid-friendly service. So just so you know what's coming. Um, And it's been an interesting week of study, to say the least. So what I want to do with this passage um, is look at it, because what's great about this is that John uh, tells this the way you would tell any dinner story, uh, dinner party story. Uh, it has all the elements of, of good storytelling. You could make this a movie or a play or a novel uh, because it has everything we need to make a good story. Um, and if you're not familiar with good story craft, um, I'll give you the basic essentials. What happened? There it is. Um, you have to establish a setting. When and where does this take place and how does that affect the story? Uh, you have to have characters to play out the story, ideally at least an antagonist and a protagonist. Uh, but the supporting characters do help move the story along and develop the main characters. You also have to have a plot. Usually the plot contains a basic narrative arc where there's some building of drama, a climax, and then some resolution. So what I want to do tonight with this passage is kind of break it down uh, by its basic narrative elements and see what we can learn from our surprising Savior. So let's start with our setting. This takes place in Bethany, at the home of some of Jesus' closest friends. Right off the bat, we can determine that things are a little tense, um, because at the very end of the last chapter, Jesus uh, or John tells us of Jesus escaping kind of a near-death experience. The crowd wanted to stone him, and he kind of miraculously escapes. And it seems that where he escaped to was about three and a half miles uh, from Jerusalem, from where this attempted stoning happened, uh, to Bethany. And uh, this is good news, except for the fact that Jesus has determined to be uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is Passover season. So the the dinner party kind of has this impending drama built into it. Everybody knows what they just escaped, and they also know what what kind of tension they're moving into. So that would kind of be affecting uh, our setting a little bit. Um, along with this setting is it is Passover, and Passover is a very festive time. Um, this, and Passover for the Jews is also uh, a pilgrimage festival. So people would have traveled from all over Israel and beyond to be in Jerusalem. So towns like Bethany that are that close, only three and a half miles away from Jerusalem, would have been packed. They would have had people you know, staying in every hotel. Most likely, uh, other Jews in towns like Bethany would take in even strangers if they're Jews. The Passover festival was so kind of open and festive that it was very common for them to, to kind of open their doors and let other Jews 
come in for dinner. So the dinner party we're tracking tonight was probably taking place, parties like it, all over Bethany and all over Jerusalem. With the difference that John tells us that tonight's dinner party was in honor of Jesus. He tells us this is happening in honor of Jesus. So, there's an emotional charge just from the tension in the setting, but the characters also bring uh, a greater emotional charge. We have uh, first Martha. This is our list of characters. First we have Martha, and she brings a little bit of an emotional component because the last time we see uh, Martha serving a meal, she's not happy about it. And so that's kind of built in. This is the Martha that served Jesus and complained about her sister leaving her to do all the serving. Um, but there's a change in tonight's thing. Tonight she doesn't seem to be as upset. In fact, it says it was thrown in honor of Jesus and Martha served. And so it sounds like she's kind of throwing this party for Jesus, uh, that she's not serving him grudgingly this time, but maybe willingly. Um, and I think that is most likely because of uh, our second character. And this is Lazarus. Lazarus is sitting at the table, it says. And there's just no way Lazarus and Jesus can be in the same room without kind of some emotional electricity. Not very many chapters ago, uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So that would be sitting in the room, you know, the, just that emotion of, of what had happened, that memory would, would be there. And I think Lazarus is probably why Martha is serving so willingly. Because how do you, you know, complain when you have received your brother and benefactor back from death? Like, how do you, how do you complain? How do you not serve Jesus willingly after that? So, Lazarus here. But Lazarus brings another kind of added element of tension to the room because John tells us that uh, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, people were gathering around to see Lazarus, uh, that he had kind of skyrocketed up into this fame and that uh, the Pharisees were so upset about it, people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus, and the Pharisees were so upset about it, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. And so Lazarus brings that tension. You, you now have two wanted men sitting at the same dinner table but in Jesus and Lazarus. So that would have brought uh, an added element of tension. Then we have the disciples. John's telling this story firsthand, and so we assume he was there. Uh, but he also mentions Lazarus, so we know that he was there. So it only makes sense that at least the 12 would have been at this dinner party. So we, we now have all 12 disciples, Martha, Jesus, or Martha, Lazarus. Uh, and this is kind of important to the story because there's a certain amount of scandal here. And, and it's because of the, the juxtaposition that the disciples create compared to, um, to Mary and, and her behavior. After that, of course, we have Judas, who gets kind of a starring role as our antagonist for this story. Uh, we have Jesus, who's kind of the central figure in the dinner, but not necessarily the protagonist of our story. The protagonist of our story has to be Mary. And she doesn't come in as an unknown quantity either. Just like Martha has some backstory, so does Mary. Mary sat and, sat and listened to Jesus teach while her sister slaved in the kitchen. And Jesus not only allowed it, but kind of praised her for her boldness, her decision uh, to listen instead of serve. And so we find her here again, kind of as the icon of devoted worship. So this sets the stage. Let's look at our plot. This is a very, very short story. Um, and I think this is because so much of it is in the, the kind of cultural symbolism that takes place here that we're going to dig into a little bit. There's no way a first century Jew reads this story the way we do. There's some major elements here that we have a tendency to miss. I'm going to try to pull out as much of that as I can. Uh, 
because I think we tend to miss some of the stuff that's going on here. So I'm going to start with Mary's role, which fits into a single verse. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Now, this was the verse that I had so much fun studying this week. Because um, in order to really unpack it, we've got to get just a little bit nerdy. And, but hang with me, because I promise this isn't boring. Because uh, the element of the story that we have a tendency to miss um, is this almost sexual element. I know that sounds super weird um, coming from the pulpit and even weirder when we're talking about Jesus, but there's absolutely no way a first century Jew could have read this without kind of spitting out their coffee and staring at the page. It, there's a lot going on here. Uh, and I learned this week, reading commentary, that the, one of the most sensual verses uh, in the whole Bible, in the Song of Solomon, to a Jew is chapter 4, verse 1. It goes, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Juicy, right? (laughs) Anybody see why that's so racy? At the beginning of the verse, she's veiled. But by the end of the verse, her hair is flowing down. He has unveiled her. This This is a huge... To, to Jews, this is downright graphic. To a first century Jew, actually to modern Jews that study it, that, that they, would, they would include this undressing scene, this unveiling scene. I read uh, through some Jewish commentaries, and when they try to put a parallel to this that would be contemporary to today, it's stuff I can't say from the pulpit. Um, now, in case you think I'm overplaying a single verse from a mostly symbolic book. Let me read from the Talmud. This is from the Mishnah of the Talmud. So this is some of the earliest rabbinical commentaries on the Torah. So these are kind of Jewish theologians who are offering commentary on the Old Testament, to use our word. And and this guy's trying to kind of explain what Jewish living was supposed to be from the very beginning. So this is, he's just explaining what a good Jew would always do. Uh, he said, these are wives who can be divorced without ketubah. Now, I've got to explain this a little bit. Uh, in Judaism, a husband can divorce his wife for any reason he wants to. Uh, as long as he pays this pretty considerable financial compensation called ketubah. If he divorces her, he has to pay ketubah. It was kind of supposed to be a deterrent toward divorce, but he could divorce her. But this rabbi in the Mishnah is saying, if a wife commits these sins, she can be divorced without ketubah. Uh, and I, here's a, I'm quoting. These wives can be divorced without ketubah. She who breaks dot Moshe in the following ways. The dot Moshe is the law of Moses. So this is the actual Torah. Uh, she breaks dot Moshe these ways. Feeding her husband untied food. So wives, if you feed your husband food you didn't pay a tithe on, you can be divorced without compensation. Um, if she touches him while uh, during her menstruation... Um, she who doesn't set aside a dough offering when making bread. She who makes a vow and doesn't keep it. So these are all things that she can do without his knowledge. So if your wife is on her menstruation, comes up and touches you on the shoulder, she's gone. You can boot her out right then because you had no idea what, you know, that she was going to touch you. So it's, these are things the husband can have no control over. And then he adds this. But a wife may also be divorced without ketubah if she, brought, if she breaks dot yehudit. In the following ways. Da'yehudit is the law of of Jewish culture. So this is the law of the rabbis. So this isn't 
the law of Moses, but it was binding as kind of the law of tradition or the law of the rabbis. He says this, these include going out with your hair unbound, spinning in the streets or speaking alone with a man. So you can't spin in the streets or leave your house with your hair unbound. Uh, in the Gemara of the Talmud, so this is a later commentary on the Mishnah. These are guys commentating on the commentators. Uh, they actually changed it to say that going out with your hair unbound was actually dot Moshe. So there was against Torah to go out with your hair unbound. Going out with it uncovered was dot Yehudit. So uh, they actually made it even stiffer. You couldn't go out with your hair uncovered or you could be uh, divorced without ketubah. So imagine a culture that takes a woman keeping her hair bound so seriously that if she doesn't do it, her husband can divorce her uh, with no financial compensation, whatever. Not a penny of, of ketubah, no support. So the real scandal in this story is the point where, where any Jew would completely drop their jaw to the floor is the point where Mary unbinds her hair. She opens her hair and lets it down in front of Jesus. One commentary scholar said this would be akin to a woman at a fine dinner party hiking her long gown up over her upper thighs and squatting to wash Jesus' feet. A Jewish commentator said that uh, he questions the veracity of the text because he can find no cultural context whereby a Jewish woman would act in such a way, with such audacity. So as if the crowded nature of the town, the crowded dinner didn't bring enough tension, as if Jesus' near-death experience in Jerusalem or the sudden stardom and death threats of Lazarus or the impending conflict over Passover didn't bring enough tension to the dinner party. Here comes Mary performing what would have been equivalent to almost a striptease or maybe a belly dance. And this is the tension that Judas speaks into. And this is where I challenge John's storytelling just a little bit because John offers us commentary on Judas's motives. John obviously knew who Judas was going to turn out to be. And I don't think he could stand the thought of his readers maybe thinking that Judas was concerned about the poor. So he, adds, he gives us some commentary to make sure that we knew who Judas really was. Um, but the only reason this bothers me just as a storyteller is because it, it kind of interrupts this great awkward silence um, that this story would have had, this kind of frozen moment. What I picture is Mary walking into the room and doing the unthinkable. And there's this long, awkward silence. And I feel like John drags it out by saying the fragrance has time to fill up the whole house. That's one way you can interpret the Greek. The fragrance had time to fill up the whole house. This actually reminds me of a time when I was running sound in a church we helped plant in Overland Park. I was framing houses at the time and I'd been working on this one builder to try and get him to come to church. This is this builder I was working for and and he finally gave in. And he's this little five foot, five inch kind of muscly guy. He'd been a gymnast in college. And so one of those guys that look normal when you see him on TV and then when you see him in real life, you can't believe how small and compact they are. One of those guys. I've been working on him forever to try and get him to, to come to church. And he finally came. And at the time we were meeting in a cafeteria and he and his wife got there late. And um, so I'm in the back of the church running sound and he and his wife come in, most of the chairs are taken, but he sees two at the very front of the church. And so they head down the center aisle to these two seats. And to make it better, his wife is about six feet tall, 
in four-inch heels and a skin-tight skirt that barely covers the essentials. And from where I was standing, I got to watch the effect this woman had on the whole church. It was like, it was like watching a crowd do the wave at a, at a soccer thing. Like there was men doing double takes, women literally doing old school elbows in guys' ribs. I saw two women cover their son's eyes. Like, like, and it was just watching the effect they had on her. After church, there was like little huddles of good Christian people trying to figure out what to do with this new dilemma. But the sad thing was, I don't think anybody talked to Mark's wife afterwards. I think they let her leave. But this is the kind of tension I picture at this dinner party. Mary comes in with the oil. She drops her hair. Some of the disciples avert their eyes. Some get that eyebrow scowl that judgmental people get so well. I've got a good set myself. Some of them are probably trying not to laugh. And in steps Judas. This is wasteful. So much better uses for that oil. For the sake of tonight's study, we're going to skip John's commentary on Judas. Because if we'd been there that night, we wouldn't have gotten that. We would have been stuck in this awkward moment with everybody else. But Judas basically says, good Lord, is this really necessary? Is this really the best use of resources? Probably trying to cover his discomfort with this moment. And Jesus responds in verse 7. Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. And I think this verse is so telling because it reveals the faith of Mary compared to the faith of Judas. See, we have a tendency to focus on the, the price of the spike nard or the extravagant worship of Mary. I, even, I read one commentator that said, a woman's glory is her hair. And so this is symbolic of Mary taking her glory and debasing it for the glory of Jesus, which could be true. Another commentator said she stands as the, the essence of heartfelt servanthood because in one, in one chapter, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet and tell them to go and do likewise. So here you have Mary doing what Jesus is going to command everybody to do uh, without having to be told. Either one of those could be true, but the reality is we, we miss one simple fact, and that is that Mary believed Jesus. Mary believed Jesus. Look what's going on back in chapter 8. I don't want to get bogged down trying to make my point. But it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he went back again to the temple. So that's where Jesus is moving in chapter 8. Well, look where Jerusalem... Jerusalem's here. Mount of Olives is up here. So guess whose neighborhood he is in 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 chapter 8? He's in Bethany. He's right in Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' backyard. He's hanging out uh, with them. So it would have been totally logical to assume back in chapter 8 that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are with Jesus. He's hanging out in their backyard. And here's what he says while he's there. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am He. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me. For I always do what pleases Him. Then many who heard Him say these things believed in Him. So we're back at Martha's dinner. And you have to ask yourself, what on earth could motivate Mary to risk the wrath of her sister who has a history of chastising her for skipping out on her chores? What on earth could motivate Mary to 
risk not only the guaranteed judgment, but possibly even lust of every man in the room? What on earth could have motivated Mary to spend so much and make such a display and even to debase herself? And the, over, the only answer, and it's maybe overly simple, but she believed what Jesus said in chapter 8. See, the fact that no one else in the room catches the significance of Spikenard tells us that none of them were thinking death in a couple days. The fact that, it, that they're concerned about money and not what Spikenard means, the fact that Jesus has to bring out the burial tells us that none of them believed what was coming. And that, and that is even including what we get from Matthew. And this is what Matthew gives us just before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. It says, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priest and teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then he'll be handed over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. You cannot get much more plain than that. Jesus has made it very clear what's happening. I believe Judas is ready for the conflict. He just doesn't think it's going to go the way Jesus says it's going to go. When you consider the power that Jesus has displayed up to this point, over sickness, over lack, over demons, over nature, the fact that a crowd just a day ago tried to kill him and he somehow miraculously escaped, it's very probable that Judas and the other disciples might have actually been excited to see what kind of power Jesus might pull out if he actually got truly cornered in Jerusalem. They were waiting for this military conflict anyway. And, and we tend to assume that, that the disciples were either blinded or confused or didn't know exactly what was going on, but in the Jewish con- concept of Messiah, they wouldn't have automatically assumed Messiah to be infallible. That wasn't built into their Judaism. They knew he was coming to be a great military leader. They knew he was coming to set them free. But they wouldn't have automatically assumed that everything he said was true. It would have been very possible to believe that Jesus is Messiah, but also to believe that he doesn't get everything right, that he makes some mistakes, that everything he says isn't necessarily going to happen. I think the disciples definitely later came to realize that Jesus was infallible, that everything he said was true. But that wouldn't have automatically been built into their Judaism. So Judas can hear what Jesus says and say, well, something's going to happen, but it's definitely not going to be what you just said. But I'm excited to see how this plays out. But Mary doesn't do it that way. Mary believed him. She believed exactly what he said. And so she breaks into this kind of festive party with a death ritual. As if she can see something nobody else can see. As if her and Jesus are on this completely different plane. Mary's more than just a great worshiper. She's a true believer. She knows what Jesus has said. She believes what Jesus has said. And she acts on it. And to those who don't believe, it looks outrageous and even scandalous. And Jesus wraps up the whole thing with some words that I believe the church desperately needs. Anybody Steven Spielberg fans? Like pretty much the whole world at some level. Remember when he was doing the real heavy movies like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan? He just seemed to keep doing the big budget heavy ones. If you 
like movie writing at all, at the end of every movie there was this line or this scene that was kind of the moral of the whole thing. You could tell it was the real sermon Spielberg was trying to preach. So at the end of Schindler's List, Schindler's in the alley and he, and he looks at his car and he's like, how many more Jews could I have saved if I'd have sold that car? And he looks down at his wedding ring and he's like, that's another, like he sees a human life instead of a wedding ring. And Spielberg's trying to get you, the viewer, to go, wow, the things I own have real human value if they can be used to help somebody. So it's, there's like this moral. At the end of Private Ryan when Captain Miller's dying and he grabs Ryan and he says, earn this. You know, it's like Spielberg's trying to get you to, to say people died for our freedoms and we should all live in a way to earn it. There's this like big moral moment at the end of every one of those movies. Well, John gives us one of those. He quotes Jesus saying, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. The moral seems to be, I don't care if what she's doing is perfect or even appropriate. She believes in me. So leave her alone. Judas thinks he knows what's going on, but he's blind. When Mary, or when Jesus validates Mary's racy and audacious worship, he tells Judas, probably the rest of the disciples, and us, that we might think we know what proper worship looks like. We might think we know what proper living looks like. We might think we know what proper theology looks like. But the second we turn that to judge somebody else, leave her alone. What if sometimes the reason we miss the Messiah is because we think we know far more than we actually know. Have you ever seen someone going to church and you're like surprised that they're going to church? Maybe even skeptical? Back in the 90s, when politics were way more simple to me, um, I remember seeing on the news Bill and Hillary Clinton coming out of church on a Sunday. A Southern Baptist church. And on the news they said, this is the church Bill Clinton's attended for years. And without a hesitation... I remember going, <laughs> talk about political pandering. No way Slick Willie's a Christian. Like, and, and I have no idea if Bill and Hillary are Christians, but I do know my attitude would have firmly placed me on the side of Judas the night of Martha's party. And here's what makes it even more complicated. Judas wasn't wrong. I think this is why John had to add so much commentary to what Judas said was because John knew that Judas was probably right about the expense. Jesus even tells them that they're supposed to be uber-focused on the poor. The, the early church took this verse, you will always have the poor among you, as a commission. They didn't take it as a statement of reality like we do. Well, there will always be poor people. They took it as a commission that as the church, you should always have the poor among you. You should be a poor magnet. So they took it to mean we should always go to the poor. They saw this verse as like a commission. Jesus said we should always have the poor among us. So if we're not drawing the poor, we must be doing something wrong. That's how the early church interpreted this. So you got Jesus say, blessed are the poor. You know, help the poor. When you give clothes, food, drink, company to the poor, you've done it unto me. Like Jesus' focus on the poor makes Judas right here. Judas is not wrong in what he's saying. This is what makes this passage so scary. It's what I call the treachery of being right. Think about this, and this is something that's always bothered me. What if you have a friend who's going to a church that you don't agree with? 
Maybe they even teach some doctrines that scare you. And you want to step in. What if the only two options for their soul at that moment is pursue God the best I can in this place or leave, run from God forever? You can't see into their soul. You can't know what's going on. That could be the condition of their soul in that moment. And your concern could be pulling for the latter. You could win and convince them that where they're at's wrong and they turn and run from God forever. You can't know. It's the treachery of being right. I used to love debating. I, I had this tendency to see the, the kind of weak theological props people would use to hold up their faith, and it drove me nuts. And to be 100% honest, it still scares me sometimes when I see the, the, the props people use to hold their faith and how weak they are. I'm like, man, if the wrong wind blows, this person's going to collapse. Like, so it, it still kind of scares me, but I used to go around debating people on these things. I would see these things and... They were holding up people's faith and I would do the best I could to kick it out from under them. You know, like, you know that's not a good... You know what happens if you believe that, you know. Of course, I wasn't giving them something better to believe. I was just knocking out the weak places in their faith and I was basically leaving a trail of disaster behind me, doing tons of damage with my rightness. Because that's what's scary. I'm pretty sure I was usually right. Most of the stuff I was attacking, I think, was bad theology. And I was going around with my rightness, hurting people. If someone is, a, is worshiping Jesus, leave her alone. Trust the Scriptures. Trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the, the time with the body of Christ to change people. Or maybe even change you. So how do we respond to this? I have this friend who is currently donating a kidney to a total stranger because she saw a plea on Facebook. She made a big lengthy post about it and was like, I know it's crazy, but I felt like God laid on my heart to do it. So is that crazy? My oldest son and Doug's son used to work together and they had a habit of picking up homeless guys and taking them to lunch with them. And it used to drive me crazy. I was is that wise? Probably not. I, I used to think it was scary until my oldest daughter started doing it. I get this random text. Just so you know, I'm going to be a little late. I'm driving a homeless person to the store. Comes with a selfie of her and the homeless person. When I try to talk to her about wisdom, she looks at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. She said, I stopped to give them some money and they needed a ride. What was I supposed to do? So here I got Jesus on one side of my daughter saying, when you give food, drink, clothing, company to the poor, you're doing it for me. And I'm on the other side with Judas going, Jesus doesn't mean what he said. He wants you to be safe. So the way I would love for us to respond to this is to believe audaciously. I counseled a guy this week in town here who doesn't go to our church, but he was hurt by his church and he started to go to another church with some of his family and he just wanted me to help him process his pain. He had heard through the grapevine that I would meet with him and so he went to Ground House and he just told me his story. He said the advice that he's gotten so far is to go to this new church, but go slow. Don't dive in right off the bat. Don't 
throw your whole heart into it. Move slowly into it. Ease, ease in so you don't get hurt again. I said, well, my advice is going to be the exact opposite. It's not popular, but if you can leave a church and it doesn't rip your guts out or at least cause some grief, you probably didn't do church right. I was like, you can't make sure it's a solid church. I said, and then dive in headfirst. You can't love and protect yourself at the same time. Love is always vulnerable. I was like, people are going to tell you you're crazy, but you can't do church and protect yourself. That's just not how you do church. You dive in. So this week, if you're holding a grudge, just drop it. Let it go. You might get taken advantage of again. You, you might never see justice in your lifetime. Other people might tell you you're crazy and it's, you're taking risks. But Jesus said that your freedom kind of depends on whether or not you give them freedom. What if you chose to just believe that audaciously? If you're caught up in a power struggle at home, and I know none of us are, but the people listening online, just give in. Just give yourself away. What if I lose leverage? What if I lose power? Jesus says, he who loses his life finds it. What if you just believe that audaciously? We know that Jesus preached an upside-down kingdom. And every time we try to live that way, we say, well, I know what he said, but how do you do that in a real world? Pra- pragmatism always crushes virtue. How do I do that in a real world? How do I love like that for real? And I can't answer all those questions, but I can point you to a lady who embalmed a living guy at a dinner party because she believed what Jesus said. Mary knew because she believed what Jesus had said that this was her last chance to serve him in the flesh. That motivated her to forget everything else, forget everyone else, and do right by Jesus. So I'd say if you don't know how to respond to this week's message, maybe imagine the people in your life and that you've only got a couple more days with them. Would you be okay with them leaving with your relationship in the condition it's in right now? Have you said everything you'd like to say? Have you made it abundantly clear how important they are to you? Have you audaciously loved them and just left all the cards on the table? Mary seized her moment. My suggestion is to go and do likewise. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you left it all on the field. You got to say at the end of your work, it is finished. I have done everything I came to do. So my prayer, God, is that you would help us to do the same. We so often know the right that we should do. There's just so many things holding us back, so many conventions holding us back, so many fears and worries holding us back. 
I love that Mary didn't do that. She ignored everything else. Because she believed that you mean what you say. Jesus, may we believe that well. In your name we pray. Amen.